Hello everyone, what is up? Welcome back to another episode of Killer Instinct, you guys. Thank you so much for joining me today. If you're new here, hi, my name is Savannah and I'm your host of Killer Instinct. Before we get started, make sure you go ahead and hit that subscribe button, that way you never miss an episode. We post weekly on the podcast and on YouTube every Wednesday and you are not going to want to miss it. Now, you guys, for today's case... This is truly a whirlwind. When I first heard about this case, I couldn't believe what I was reading. It felt like something out of a horror movie. It felt like something you only see in the movies, you only hear about in the movies. It did not seem like a real case. And I knew that I needed to talk to you guys about it today, not only because it is so mind-blowingly twisted and horrific. However, the ending of this case I think will truly shock you and I'm really interested to hear what you guys have to say from the conclusions that are from this case. So with that being said, as you can tell by the title of the episode, we are talking about the murder of Marlene Warren. So let's jump right on into it. Marlene May McKinnon, which is her maiden name, was born on April 15th of 1950 in Mount Clemens, Michigan, to her mother, Shirley Twing. Marlene was raised by a single mother until she was 15 years old when her mom married a man named Bill Twing. Marlene herself also got married at a young age to a man named John Ahrens, and together they had two sons, Johnny and Joe. Now, Marlene got married to John at a very young age, but unfortunately, she also became a widow at a very young age when John passed away unexpectedly. And when that happened, this left Marlene to raise her two sons all on her own, again, at a very young age. She had her first child when she was 16, so you can only imagine how hard that would be to not only have to raise two children on your own, but also be a widow at such a young age. However, regardless, Marlene was able to pull through for the sake of her children, and she had a great support system. Her family was incredibly supportive of Marlene and tried to help her out however they could. Marlene was an extremely devoted mother. She was known for her kindness and for her compassion and for how she always put her sons first before anything or anyone. She always wanted the best for them. She always looked out for them. And because it was just the three of them, it was just Marlene and her boys, the three of them became extremely close. Now, around 1976 is when Marlene met a new man named Michael Warren. Michael was eight years younger than Marlene and he worked at a used car dealership and him and Marlene really hit things off when they met. They ended up moving to a town called Wellington, Florida together with Marlene's two sons and Michael ended up opening a new car lot called Bargain Motors on the North Dixie Highway. Bargain Motors was a used car lot, and it was something that Michael was incredibly passionate about, and he was really good at running that business. And Marlene also really helped Michael get on his feet and helped support him financially and emotionally through that process. Now, Marlene, Michael, and the boys were definitely living a pretty good life, Together, they owned several rental properties that combined were worth a total of about a million dollars, again, at the time, which was in the 1970s, 1980s. 
And they also lived in a very exclusive community in Wellington called the Arrow Club. And the Arrow Club was a very highly affluent community. They even had a landing strip in the neighborhood for people to fly in on their planes and their jets. And they were able to land right in the middle of the neighborhood. So on the outside, this family, the Warren family, they were living the luxury life. However, as we know, nothing is ever the same behind closed doors. Now, unfortunately and tragically, in 1988, Marlene's oldest son, Johnny, ended up passing away on September 23rd from a car accident. And you can really only imagine the grief that both Marlene and Joe were going through, considering the fact that they had not only lost John, who was Marlene's husband and Joe's father, but they also now lost Johnny. And so because of this, Marlene and Joe became extremely close. They relied on each other for everything. They were each other's best friends. It really strengthened their relationship because no one else knew the experience and the feelings that they were going through other than the two of them. The trauma of losing both John and Johnny was something that was incredibly difficult for everyone. However, through that trauma, Joe and Marlene really leaned on each other. So now we move on to May 26th, 1990. This started out like any normal day for Marlene and her family. Michael had woken up early that day and was planning on driving down to Miami for a work trip. So he left early in the morning, which left Marlene at home with Joe. The two of them were there at the house together with some of Joe's friends. It was just a group of them. And according to Joe, this morning started off like any other. They were all sitting around the kitchen table eating breakfast, talking about the plans that they had for the rest of their day, when all of a sudden there was a knock on the door. Now, with the way that Marlene's house worked, where they were all sitting and eating breakfast, they had direct view of the front door. So the kitchen table could see the front door. And once that knock came at that front door, Marlene got up and walked over to answer the door. Now, as Marlene was walking over to answer the door, Joe overheard his mom say, how nice, because on the other side of the door, was a person wearing a clown costume holding balloons and flowers. Now, initially, Marlene just assumed that this was a special delivery, someone sending her flowers and balloons, thanking her for something or complimenting her or giving her some sort of gift. However, when she opened the door, the clown dropped the flowers, pulled out a gun, and shot Marlene point blank in the face. Right after the shot went off, Joe immediately rushed to his mom's side, who at this point had fallen onto the floor, and Joe was able to see this clown that was standing in front of them. Now, the clown didn't immediately walk away after that shot was fired. The clown stood there for several seconds, which was enough time for Joe to go over to his mother's side, make eye contact with the clown, and watch the clown calmly turn around, walk away, and get into a white Chrysler LeBaron car, a car that had no license plate, and drive off. Joe recalled that this clown was wearing an orange wig, a red nose, and had painted on a happy face. He was also able to remember that the clown had dark, dark brown eyes. 
Now, immediately, Joe's friends called the police, and when they arrived, Marlene was taken to the hospital at the Palm West Hospital, which is unfortunately where she passed away two days later on May 28th in 1990 after she succumbed to her injuries. From the moment that Marlene entered the hospital, she never woke up. She was never able to speak to police. She was in a medically induced coma until her family decided to pull her off of life support. Imagine an app designed to make you use it less. Seems a little counterproductive, right? Well, Apartments.com's Instant Alert feature works exactly that way. Instead of scanning rental listings a million times a day, simply set and forget your search to whatever you're looking for in a place and let Apartments.com do the rest. From pet-friendly apartments to balconies to in-unit ACs, Apartments.com's powerful search tools let you know when the perfect combination of features you're seeking is listed. So you don't have to power through rental descriptions one by one. With more rental listings than anywhere else, Apartments.com's instant alerts mean that you can spend less time looking for the perfect place and more time on just doing you. Apartments.com, the place to find a place. So now police had a homicide investigation on their hands and were trying to figure out who this clown killer was. When they arrived on the scene on May 26th, police noticed that the flowers that the clown had brought were still left on the front doorstep. The flowers were a mix of white and red carnations arranged in a basket. The balloons were also left at the house. There were two of them, a red heart-shaped balloon that said, you're the greatest, written on it, and another silver and white balloon that had Snow White and the Seven Dwarves on it. Now, initially, and probably to no one's surprise, the first person that police wanted to speak to in regards to this investigation was Michael, Marlene's husband. Now, as I mentioned earlier, at the time of the murder, Michael was not home. He was on his way to the Calder racetrack located in the Miami Gardens, so he was not home, nor was he anywhere near his house when Marlene was murdered. When police spoke to Michael, he claimed that he had no idea who would ever want to murder Marlene, and he claimed that he certainly was not responsible. However, even though Michael was trying to portray his innocence, Marlene's family and friends claimed otherwise. According to Marlene's mom, Shirley, a year prior to Marlene's murder, Marlene started having suspicions of Michael having an affair. Marlene confided in her mother, saying that she was afraid of what would happen if she divorced Michael due to the assets that were all in her name. Marlene even told her mom, Shirley, that if anything were to ever happen to her, Michael was the one who did it. And when you actually think about that, that is a pretty strong accusation to make against anyone, let alone your husband, the person you're married to. And so for that accusation to have gone up in the air a year before Marlene's murder, and then a year after Marlene ended up dead... Her mother, Shirley, certainly told police that Michael should not be overlooked. Now, like I mentioned, Marlene was under the assumption that Michael was having an affair. And the reason she thought that was because some of Michael's co-workers at the used car dealership started talking. 
Marlene overheard from some of the employees there that Michael had been having an affair with another employee at the dealership, and that employee was named Sheila Keen. Sheila, like I mentioned, was an employee at Michael's car dealership, and it was suspected that the two of them were having an affair leading up to the murder. Now, Sheila was also married, and her and her husband at the time, whose name is Richard, were running a car repossession business when Michael hired the both of them. Now, the reason that Marlene was afraid to leave Michael was because most of the assets, like I mentioned earlier, were in Marlene's name, and that included their home and the car dealership. Marlene was afraid of the lengths that Michael would go to if she did decide to leave him and divorce him because all of those assets would technically be hers. Therefore, all of the money that the dealership is bringing in would be hers as well. Now, a year before the murder, the Warren family actually had to hire an attorney for a different case in regards to one of Marlene's sons, and that attorney is named Christopher DeSantis. Now, one day, while Christopher DeSantis and Michael were at the courtroom in regards to the hearing against Marlene's son, Christopher remembers a very unusual question that Michael asked him. As Michael and Christopher were both walking out of the courtroom, Michael turned to Christopher and told him that he had a question to ask. Michael went on to ask Christopher that if a husband were to murder his wife, what would happen to the assets? Now, initially, when Christopher heard this question, he was completely taken aback. He had no idea why Michael would be suggesting such a thing, why he would be asking of such a thing especially because he had never suspected Michael nor Marlene to have any issues or problems in regards to their marriage. A direct quote from Christopher says, quote, My first impression was, is this guy nuts? Because why would you ask a question like that when your wife is there? Then I took a look around and I noticed that his wife wasn't there. End quote. Now, ultimately, Christopher said he chalked up the question to just be one of curiosity rather than one that he should be alarmed by. He figured that this was something that Michael was just curious about. He just wanted to know what would happen, not that he would ever act on it. If you're watching me on YouTube and not listening to me on the podcast, you can see that it's hard for me to contain this look on my face of how could you possibly think that, but I digress. Christopher also remembered what he told Michael in response to this question, which was, quote, It really isn't an issue of whether a man kills his wife. The question is whether the man is convicted of murdering his wife, because if he's convicted, he wouldn't inherit the assets. But if he were convicted of a lower charge, he would. Not only that, but if he had a friend who did it and they couldn't tie him as an accessory to the friend, he'd get away scot-free, end quote. Now, sadly, this case did end up going cold for years and years and years. Marlene got no justice for her murder. And after the murder, Joe, which was Marlene's youngest son, he had no contact with Michael. Michael never reached out to him. Michael never tried to speak with him. And he ended up moving out of state. Now, in regards to Michael, Michael ended up getting married to his alleged mistress, Sheila, in 2002. After Marlene's murder, they moved to Southwest Virginia together and ended up opening a restaurant 
called the Purple Cow in Kingsport, Tennessee. When they moved to Southwest Virginia, the hope for Michael and Sheila is that they were going to be able to start fresh together, so much so that Sheila ended up going by a different name. She ended up using the alias Debbie and started going by Debbie to everyone who she was meeting in her new town. And for all things considered, for like I said, years and years and years, Michael and Sheila were able to almost leave the past in the past, for lack of a better phrase, because police were not able to piece this together. Because when you think about it, even though they had a lot of belief as to what they believed happened in this case, they couldn't get a conviction off of just what they think. And having this murderer dress up in a clown suit honestly led to a lot more questions than it did answers. It led to the identity of the murderer being a secret. The only thing that police knew about this clown is that it had brown eyes because that was the one thing that Joe distinctly remembered when seeing the clown that morning. But in regards to everything else, police were really at a standstill. They didn't know if this clown was a man or a woman because they were wearing a wig. They had happy face makeup painted all over their face. They were wearing a giant jumpsuit and police weren't able to piece together who the real identity of this killer was. Now, it is important to note that four days after the murder, police were able to locate that Chrysler LeBaron car, that white car that the killer drove away in. It was found in the parking lot of a Winn-Dixie supermarket near Marlene's house. However, the costume nor the murder weapon were ever found inside. And because of that, like I mentioned, this case went cold. It wasn't until 2013 when this case was reopened. A brand new set of eyes started looking at this case. And when they did, the first thing that they did is go back to that costume shop from all of those years ago from where the wig was purchased from. They were able to narrow down which costume shop the wig came from because they were able to take pieces and fibers of the hair that were in the wig that were found in the car as well as at Marlene's house on the front porch they were able to take those fibers and narrow down where that exact wig was sold from. And when they spoke to the employees, which again, this was much, much, much later. However, they were able to track down those employees. And when they spoke to them, they were able to identify the person that purchased the clown suit. Now, it is important to note that they did this initially as well. They were able to track down where this clown suit came from, and that was just in the days after the murder. So this wasn't something that they had all of a sudden decided to do or all of a sudden thought of. This was something that they had done before, but now police were again just confirming on that. And what the employees told police was that several days prior to the murder, there was a woman who came in and purchased that clown costume. And when presenting to the employees a lineup of different women and men who could have purchased this clown costume, the employees were adamant on the fact that the woman who purchased the clown costume was, in fact, Sheila. 
Not only that, police were also able to track down where the balloons were from. Police were able to track down the balloons from the one specific snow white balloon because that was a very unique balloon. It hadn't been sold in a lot of places. And so they were able to narrow down the places that did sell that balloon. And that is when they discovered that the balloons were purchased from a Publix supermarket that was located about a half a mile away from Sheila's apartment. And after speaking to the public's employees, those employees confirmed that the woman who bought the balloons was in fact Sheila and that she purchased them just an hour before the murder. When the forensic team went through the white Chrysler car, they had discovered several pieces of orange hair-like fibers found inside of it, which police presumed were from that orange wig. And this is where they hit their jackpot. In 2013, when the case was reopened, they already had loads of evidence. However, they were not able to connect the dots between the evidence. However, then, even though it took three years to get the DNA results, DNA showed a positive match to the orange wig hairs found inside of the car to be the same wig fibers that were found inside of Sheila's apartment. Because after this murder occurred, police spoke to Michael, they spoke to Sheila, they went through Michael's home that he shared with Marlene, they went through Sheila's apartment, and they found those orange fibers. And so because DNA technology has advanced so much, it was in 2016 when the DNA results were able to finally confirm that they were the same fibers. It was the same wig. And this is when police really started connecting the dots. They knew that it would have been very easy for Sheila to get her hands on a car, a getaway car, to drive her away from the murder scene due to the fact that she worked at a used car dealership. And when police looked into that, they were able to see that that specific car came off of Michael's lot and was stolen, according to the employees that worked there, a month prior to the murder. Inside of the car, police also found long strands of brown hair, which proved to be a positive DNA match to Sheila. So with all of this incriminating evidence, Sheila was arrested in 2017 for the murder of Marlene Warren. And again, when police went to arrest her, her and Michael were now living in Virginia and she was going by the name Debbie. From the beginning of her arrest, Sheila claimed that she was not responsible for Marlene's death and she pled not guilty to the charges against her. And the defense was definitely trying to make the argument that Sheila was not responsible for this. Even though the prosecution was able to conclude that the white Chrysler was in fact stolen off of Michael's car lot, the defense was trying to say that it was impossible to know whether or not that was the exact car used in the murder. Now, when it came to the hair fibers found in the car, the defense was also trying to claim that the DNA results proved that those strains of hair showed both female and male genes, and that one of the strands of hair actually showed that the hair could have belonged to one of 20 women, including Marlene and including Sheila. So they were trying to argue that there was no way to actually prove whether or not the hair strands in the car belonged to Sheila. However, the prosecution was dead set on proving otherwise. 
Now, another big issue with the evidence in this case was the fact that this was a 33-year-old case that everyone was now trying to reopen. There's a lot of evidence on both sides that now aren't as strong as they once were. And along with that, the lead crime scene investigator in this case had actually passed away by the time that this case had reopened. And in regards to that, the Palm Beach state attorney named Dave Ehrenberg said that, quote, the death of the lead crime scene investigator broke the chain of custody for critical evidence that could no longer be authenticated, end quote. So both sides of the fence were having trouble in this case. But like I mentioned, Sheila pled not guilty to the charges against her. And because of that, a trial was set to begin on May 12th of 2023. So quite literally, in about a week by the time you guys hear this, there was supposed to be a trial for Sheila for the murder of Marlene Warren. However, on Tuesday, April 25th of 2023, so again, just about a week ago from the time you guys hear this, Sheila decided to make a plea deal. Sheila pled guilty to the second degree murder of Marlene Warren. Now, according to Sheila's defense team, they claim that the reason that Sheila went forward with this plea deal was because that the prosecution was looking at the death penalty for Sheila. The prosecution was trying to sentence Sheila to death. However, if Sheila took the plea deal, she would only get 12 years in prison for second degree murder, which is what she ended up doing. The defense also claimed that they advised Sheila that oftentimes the jury gets it wrong on both sides of the coin. And that even though she was claiming her innocence, if she were to be proven guilty, she would be looking at the death penalty. So because of all of those factors combined, Sheila ended up pleading guilty to second degree murder and she was sentenced to 12 years in prison. But there's a kicker. The judge had actually credited Sheila for the time she had already spent in prison, which was about six years considering she was arrested in 2017. And at the time of the sentencing, Sheila had spent exactly 2,039 days in jail. So those days were reduced from her sentence. And along with that, Sheila's sentence was also reduced due to the fact that she was awarded on good behavior. So because of those two factors combined, Sheila is now only looking at facing a 16-month to 24-month sentence and will be released within the next year and a half to two years. After all of that, she's only going to be convicted for 16 months to two years. The prosecution is very confident that she'll have to spend two years in prison. However, the defense is confident that she'll be out in 16 months. Her defense team claimed, quote, while it was difficult to plead guilty to a crime she did not commit, it was kind of a no-brainer when there was a guarantee that she will be home with her family, end quote. So even though all of the evidence proved and pointed to the fact that Sheila was responsible, the fact that the hair fibers in her apartment matched the hair fibers in the car, which matched the hair fibers on that wig, the fact that her hair strands were found in the car, the fact that all of the factors combined, all of it, she will be walking free very soon. Now, you may be sitting there asking yourself, where does Michael fall in all of this? Because he was the one who was married to Marlene, and then he was the one who went on to marry Sheila, 
And from the beginning, Michael has actually never been convicted of anything in connection to Marlene's death, and he has maintained his innocence as well as what he believes to be Sheila's innocence. He claimed that if Sheila was ever to be guilty, then he would have never gone ahead and married her, which is pretty hard to believe when you think about the fact that about a year before the murder, Michael had asked an attorney what would happen to a husband's assets if he were to kill his wife. It just doesn't seem that believable. And truthfully, I know that I, I, when I approach these cases, I don't like to put my two cents into it. I just like to give you the facts as they are and let you decide for yourself. And this is going to be an open conversation still. However, I can't hold back in this one. I don't think there's a world that exists where Michael and Sheila were not in on this together. I think that the likelihood that Sheila would come up with this on her own and then go ahead with murdering Marlene on a day that Michael just so happened to be out of town is pretty coincidental, although it's not impossible. She very well could have gone forward with this on her own. However, personally, I'm having trouble wrapping my head around that because whoever did this, how did they know that Marlene was going to be the one answering the door? How did they know that Michael was already out of the house? The car was stolen a month prior off of Michael's lot. So it just, the coincidences are a little too coincidental for me to believe that they're just coincidences. What are the other theories that could play out here? The theories are Sheila did this on her own, Sheila did this and Michael knew about it, or Michael hired someone who was not Sheila to follow through with this and basically hired a hitman to do it who dressed up as a clown. However, personally, I have trouble believing that last theory just because of all of the evidence that had been planted around in Sheila's apartment and in the car, and it doesn't seem that believable to me. But I'm really interested to hear what you guys have to say about this. This case really did all unfold within the past week in terms of the conclusion of this case and the sentencing and all of that. So I'm really interested to hear what you guys have to say about it. But with that being said, you guys, that is all for me today. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Killer instinct if you're new here hi my name is savannah and i'm your host of killer instinct again make sure you go ahead and hit that subscribe button that way you never miss an episode we post weekly here every wednesday and you are not going to want to miss it i'll be back next week with a brand new one for you guys and until then stay safe bye guys